This morning we'll be in Mark 15, verses 21 through 38. This morning's message is titled, At Calvary. Our reading of the Gospel of Mark, in this case, has brought us to a very tragic day at this place called Calvary. Now, Calvary is not something you would read in our Bible, and it's because it comes from a Latin word, Calvaria, which then comes from a Greek word, which then comes from the Aramaic word, Golgotha. So Golgotha is usually what we would associate with this place uh, where the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take place. And this place of death resembles the top part of a man's skull, and so the name was very fitting. Calvaria, which is where Calvary comes from, refers to the top part of the skull or the bald head or something along those lines. That's why we say at Calvary. That's referring to the hill Golgotha. Now, in our text today, the things that we're going, going to read are, are so tragic simply because this is not just any man and a man who was done unjustly who hangs on this Roman cross and is mocked and ridiculed and abused and, and eventually brought to that place of death. It's not just any man, it's the God-man. And that tells us that even though many people have died very tragic deaths throughout their lives, some people have suffered for many years longer, much longer than Jesus did on the cross, it's not a comparison in, in any way to, as some would say, apples to apples. This is, this is no comparison at all because this is the God-man who hangs on the cross. And the cross was a symbol of, of guilt. And criminals were affixed to this cross. Criminals hung here as a spectacle to the, 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 the onlookers to remind them that to break Roman law was, was an offense worthy of death, but even worthy of such a great amount of torture, which is what the crucifixion was. But for God to hang on the cross, there's no comparison. For the last 7,000 years of human history, since Adam and Eve stood in the Garden of Eden, no one has ever experienced or suffered like Jesus did on this day. And it's because he's not just a man, he's God in the flesh. If you will, this morning, stand to your feet. We'll read our passages and then we'll move into the message. And I hope that it'll be a help and maybe even an encouragement for you as we move into the new year. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they departed his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging his heads and saying, I'm sorry, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. 
Likewise, also the chief priest mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others himself, he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. I pray that you'd help me, Lord, to preach the message you want preached to your people today. Lord, if there happens to be one, here with us this morning who is lost, we pray today would be their day of salvation, that they would receive everlasting life. If there happens to be one online listening who is lost and on their way to hell, we pray that today would be their day of salvation and that they would receive everlasting life. What I pray now is we make our way through this tragic event when our Savior hung on the cross at Calvary that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, hearts to understand and feel. And Lord, that you would bless this message and may the Holy Spirit be our preacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can go and be seated. So at Calvary, at Calvary, you know, crucifixions were very common at Calvary, this place called Golgotha. Romans would use crucifixions, this uh, barbarous, barbarous method of punishment to keep fear in the people who may think of revolting. That was one of the reasons why they made it such a spectacle. And the hill was an elevated place so that everyone in the land could look and see those bodies of those individuals, those criminals, hanging on those crosses. One man actually wrote this about the cruelty of the cru- crucifixion. He says, Exposed to public view like slabs of meat hung from a market stall. Criminals were nailed to crosses. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds, such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This crucifixion was nothing to um, take lightly. It was one of the worst forms of torture that's ever been created. And I know you've probably heard messages along the way on the ins and outs and the details or the DNA, I think some have said, of the crucifixion. Um, But it was a torturous, torturous uh, method of punishment. As a person not only had their body torn apart by the cat of nine tails and the lashings that they would take, but then they had to go and carry this cross to the top of this hill. They'd soon be exhausted and their heart would be racing and they'd be trying to catch their breath only to find that they'd be thrown down on top of this beam, have their hands nailed to it, and then they would be erected up in the air. 
where their body is so fatigued that they couldn't hold themselves up enough to get a breath. And so what would happen is they would collapse and eventually they would be suffocated to death as they sat there and bled, bled out on that cross. And then the shame and the embarrassment while you hung there naked, exposed to the entire world as they wagged their heads and pointed their fingers and mocked you and cursed you and so forth and so on. Uh, It was a horrible form of torture. It affected every part of man spiritually and physically. Now, even though this scene is so horrific, there is a silver lining at the end. And I hope we'll get there, and I hope you'll stay with me while we make our way towards the end of it. But what I find at Calvary this morning in our text is I find four things at Calvary. And the first one I find in verse 21 is Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross. If you were to look at the end of verse 20, you would see that they led him out to crucify him. He was given a cross. Now, some descriptions about the cross. It's, it's known from historians that the cross was approximately 300 pounds in weight. Uh, the day before yesterday, I had to go and get water for the house, and we, we buy our water from High Country Springs out in Pilot on 268. And each one of those five-gallon jugs can be somewhere around 50 pounds apiece. Well, the van was parked in the little driveway up here, so I parked down low, and I had to carry four four or five-gallon jugs up the steps and into the house. And I got one under each arm, and I was hoofing it, you know, like Rocky Balboa going up these steps. By the time I got done carrying all that weight, which was roughly 200 pounds, I was winded when I got in the house. I said, whoo, man, and it was cold to top it off. It was rough. The cross is said to have weighed approximately 300 pounds, though the victim did not have to carry the entire cross. They carried the the crossbar that went uh, along the top of the cross, and usually there was a pole already fixed on the hill, and that same pole would carry the weight of multiple victims over the years until they had to eventually tear it down and replace it. So the victim would carry a crossbar, and it weighed somewhere up to 125 pounds. The victim was usually stripped naked, and his hands were tied to that wood, and that's what he would have to carry up to the top of Golgotha. It was quite a weight, and it was quite a spectacle. Now, there are some writings, in, in um, I believe it's a Jewish historian, that's, that claims that the Romans allowed Jewish men who were crucified to wear some type of loincloth to cover their nakedness because within their culture it would have been a very shameful thing to be exposed completely. So that could have been the case, but we don't know for sure. But the majority of uh, victims did hang there absolutely and completely naked on that cross. Now, as far as Jesus' cross, he at first carries his cross, but his body is so exhausted from the previous beatings and the description is that This cat of nine tails would have just about ripped his flesh off of his body, shredded his muscles, even pulled out organs from inside of his body, and blood loss would have been something that would have probably just immediately killed a normal man. But Jesus, he had to make it to the to Calvary, had to make it to the cross. And so, as they gave him this crossbar, and he was meant to carry it up to the top of Calvary. He could not do it. So in verse 21, it says, They compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. 
Jesus had collapsed under the weight of that crossbar. And here comes one Simon, this man who had not really been given any attention prior to this event, and he's only mentioned in in the Gospels at this time. And he's a man from Serene, which is in the northern part of Africa. Today it would be Libya. This man may or may not have been a proselyte Jew. We don't know. There's no details to tell one way or the other. But here's what we know about Simon the Cyrenian. He was a foreigner. And this foreigner comes into Jerusalem, possibly for the Passover, maybe. We don't know for sure because there's no details on it. But here he is passing through, and he's about to leave the country, and the Romans find him and force him to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, the Romans were lawful to do this. Here's why. The Roman soldiers wanted this crucifixion to take place. If they couldn't have performed the crucifixion, well, Passover was about to take place, or at least the weekend part of it. They would have had to, they would have had to delay the execution of Jesus, which would have offended their leaders, Pontius Pilate, and they may have been punished as a result of it. So they wanted Jesus to get to the cross and to die so they could move on with their lives. But no Jewish man would have carried the cross of Jesus, and it was because they rejected him as the king of the Jews. And they declared that he'd be crucified. So this one Simon the Cyrenian was more than likely not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And this Gentile carries the cross of Jesus, which is so fitting for what we find after the after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that we move into the book of Acts, and what do we find? The Jews continuously reject their Messiah, but who receives him? The Gentiles. And God works amongst the Gentiles all throughout the world to spread the gospel. So it's almost a symbol of what would happen, but it also reminds us of what Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When we take up the cross, now Jesus here had no cross to bear, did he? If the cross was that of a criminal, Jesus wasn't a criminal, so whose cross was he bearing? He was bearing the world's cross, that's right. He was bearing the world's cross. And here, it's a reminder when Simon comes in to take that crossbar upon his shoulders, that we too ought to take our crosses and bear them daily so that we might go forth and continue the work of Christ because he called us to such things. Now, in addition to that, I think there's another comparison here that we could make, and it's this. There was another man named Simon who once walked with Jesus. And I guess, you know, he still walked with him even during this time in in the account of Mark. And his name was Simon Peter. And Simon Peter declared that he would die for Jesus. But where was Simon Peter when Jesus was bearing the cross to the hill of Golgotha? Simon was nowhere to be found. And so God had to bring about another Simon to take his place. And I do believe it reminds us that we ought not let other people occupy the space that God has provided for us in this world. Each one of us have a ministry that we ought to fulfill. Each one of us have a work that God has called us to do. And often we we quench the Holy Spirit, we grieve Him, and we don't move forward concerning the work that God has called us to do, and someone else has to come along and take our place so that God's work can be fulfilled. Reminds us of that as well. 
So Jesus' cross is the first thing we see here as we look at Calvary. The second thing we see here is Jesus' crucifixion. That takes us into verses 22 through 33. A good portion of our passages will be right here. At the crucifixion, we start with verse 22. And they bring him unto the place called Gotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And this is the point where you could imagine Jesus at first carried the crossbar. Now his hands are nailed to the crossbar. His feet are nailed to the beam that was erected there. And there he hangs as a spectacle to the world upon that cross. And then on either side of him, he has two thieves there that will be mentioned later in the scripture. But during Jesus' crucifixion, we first see in, in verse 23, we see the drugs. Look at verse 23. They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Turn with me back to Proverbs chapter 31. This was a passage I came across this morning as I was reading my studies in Proverbs. And I thought it was interesting, uh, so I thought I'd share it with you. Proverbs 31 verse 6. It says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of a heavy heart. Now, in the case of, of Psalm 31.6, mentioning something that is almost used like a narcotic, those who are at the end of their life, those who are coming to the place of, of death, we find something similar happening in Mark 15, verse 23. They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh. This was some type of narcotic. Most of the time, it was, a, it was a humane practice for the ladies in the area to prepare something for the criminals that hung on the cross, and they would prepare a drink that they could take, which would numb the body just slightly and help them to endure the pain and the suffering before they died. In verse 23, that's what they offered Jesus while he hung there on the cross. They offered him, they offered him narcotics to numb his pain. But did you know most of those, well, all of those criminals that hung on that cross, they deserved to be there. And the pain and the punishment that they were enduring was something they did not want. They just wanted the sinful satisfaction, whatever the crime was that they committed. They wanted the rewards of that, but they did not want the punishment that followed. But Jesus was so different, wasn't he? Because he was innocent. And the reason why he was there was not because the court system of the Jews was just so profound and able to trick everyone to believe that Jesus was a sinner. And the reason why Jesus was there was not because Pontius Pilate was such a, a, an authoritative figure that he was able to declare that this one would be crucified. The reason why Jesus hung there is because it was a part of God's work to redeem mankind. And so we read in the text that. He was offered this narcotic, but look what it says. He received it not. He received it not. We've already spent much time in Isaiah 53 as we've been making our way through this chapter, but in Isaiah 53 it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased Jehovah to bruise the Christ. And as Jesus hung there, if he had have numbed his senses and numbed his pain, it would have not been a fulfillment of what God's plan was for the Christ. The Christ was to take the punishment of the entire world upon himself. And therefore, every ache, every pain, every tear, 
every every nerve that was affected by the events on this day, all of them were stimulated and and going out of control as Jesus endured the pain and suffering for our sake and was not willing to receive the drugs. The second thing we find at Jesus' crucifixion is something that we'll read in Psalm chapter 22. Go to Psalm 22. And once you find Psalm 22, I want you to take and mark that somehow just to hold on to it because we're going to go back there later in our message. Psalm chapter 22, look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16. In verse 16 it says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22 was written close to a thousand years prior to the Christ walking on earth. And here it's prophetic, and I think you can understand why, that David the psalmist was able to write down such things that these dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. In Mark chapter 15, verses 23 through 28, we also see at Jesus' crucifixion the dogs that are mentioned. Look at verse 23 again. They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. Now, if you go back to Psalm 22 again, look at verse 17. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. As our Savior hung on the cross there at Calvary, the dogs were all those that surrounded Him, the doubters and uh, really the dogs referring to the Gentiles, the the Romans that were there, and in this case, the ones who took His garments from Him and they casted lots, parting them amongst themselves. And He mentions again in Psalm 22 how this was prophetic in a sense and it was a fulfillment of a prophecy that God had declared would take place concerning his Christ. And then as we move into uh, verse 27, read that with me, if you will, of Mark 15. And And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. By the way, these are not necessarily Jews that were here. We don't know one way or the other. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And again, that is Isaiah 53, 12. All of these things happening here are prophetic, a fulfillment of what God had promised would take place concerning the Christ who would take away the sins of the world. Now, the third thing we see at Jesus' crucifixion are the doubters that we find in verse 29. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. In verses 29 through 30, they are mocking what Jesus had declared, that he would destroy the temple. And they're basically saying that our temple, the the literal temple that was in Jerusalem, is greater than the one who hangs on the cross. Oftentimes people make the church in itself, the building, greater than the one who hung on the cross. And it ought not be that way. The living God has always been greater than the 
then the structures that we have built, whether it be this church building or it be a temple in Jerusalem or it be some other grandiose uh, creation of man along the way, we worship God through truth and spirit. We don't worship Him through trinkets and man-made objects. And these men, as they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they were doubting Him for what He said He was. He said, I am the Savior. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. They say, well, if you're Savior, then save yourself. But the thing is, if He were Savior, how could He save Himself? He has to first save the, one he's come to, the ones that He's come to save. And though Jesus could have pulled himself down off of the cross, he could have called down legions of angels to deliver him, and yet that's not what he did. And the reason he did not do that is because he hung on the cross in order to save that which was lost. And the doubters refused to believe that. Look with me at verse 31. Likewise also the chief priest, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others himself. He cannot save. Verse 32, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with Him reviled Him. These doubters even give Him an additional name. They once called Him the King of the Jews. Now they call Him Christ, the King of Israel, in a very mocking manner. But that's exactly who He was. And if you consider the name Israel, which simply means God prevails, this is God's method of prevailing over the sins of the world that we might have everlasting life. As they say this, they fail to realize here in the passage how they say that Christ, the King of Israel, must descend now from the cross, and that's how he proves himself. But I believe we understand today that the God of heaven descended from heaven and came down to the earth in order to save us. And he proved himself in that manner. They failed to realize that. They still saw Jesus as just a man on the cross. And often people still see him as just a man on the cross. And they don't see him for who he is, God who became man and humbled himself even unto death that we might receive everlasting life. So during Jesus' crucifixion, we see again these doubters that are mentioned here, but then we see the darkness mentioned in verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From the middle of the day, the noon hour, which the sun would have been at its highest point, that would have been the brightest time of the day, until 3 o'clock p.m., darkness fell over the land. Now, this darkness was not something that you could go back in the history books and find that there was a lunar eclipse of some kind or a solar eclipse of some kind, and somehow this eclipse is what affected the the light source that they had then, which would have been the sun. You won't find it, and here's why. Because it would have been a full moon around this time at Passover. And that's why this event was something that was not natural. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. It was almost as if God Himself allowed the sun to be blocked during these three hours of darkness that shrouded the land. And it even seems as though it speaks towards even creation that felt the agony of the Christ as He hung there on the cross. I had found as I was studying this out that there was a Roman historian from the second century, a man by the name of Phlegon, who wrote about this event in the first century. 
And he wrote this. He said, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night. And then there was an earthquake that followed. As the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, suffered, the world turned dark. It also reminds us that the Father could not look upon the Son during those three hours. And it brings my mind back to the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord said, Let this cup pass from me. The cup was not the pain and suffering that he felt on the cross. He was willing to humble himself, even unto death, is what the scriptures say. The cup was when the Father could not look on the Son. And His favor could not shine on Him because the Son became sin for us. And that leads us into verse 34, one of the most horrifying cries ever to be uttered by a man. And it says this, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The third thing I see at Calvary is Jesus' cry. And the first cry is the cry of a sinner. If you go with me to Psalm 22 again and look at verse 1, you'll see that cry prophesied 1,000 years roughly prior to Christ. And it says this, In verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Now, often cults will say, well, why would God on the earth pray to God in heaven and say, why have you forsaken me? And for that, they deny the Trinity that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Because they say, why would Jesus utter such things? God has apparently forsaken him. But you have to understand what is taking place during those three hours of darkness. The sinners are being judged. The sin is being judged. But for Jesus, he was without sin. But what did he become for us? He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be called the righteousness of God. Here you have the sinner's cry as Jesus cries out to God, this being a picture of the sinner who dies in his sin and cries out from hell, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He says, My God, because as soon as every sinner opens his eyes in torment, he instantly is aware that God is the only one true living God and there is none other. Allah is no God. Confucius is no God. Buddha is no God. The God of the Mormons is no God. The God of the Jehovah's Witness is no God. There is only one true living God. And from hell they say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you will, turn with me over to 2 Corinthians verse 5. Jesus here cries out these words, but I want you to understand exactly what was happening during this time as we hear the cry of the sinner. And in chapter 5, verse 19, we have a a wonderful passage that explains to us just exactly what was happening. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, To wit, to know, is what that means, that God was in Christ. I've highlighted that in my own Bible because I believe those four words are a proof text for the Trinity, that God was in Christ, in Christ, hanging on the cross, doing what? Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us. That's him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus hung on the cross and at Calvary, we hear the sinner's cry. And that cry says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that cry reminds us that here the holy Christ of God was made sin for us. And this cry proves God the Father placed all sin on God the Son at this time in history. But then we hear the Son's cry. Go with me back to Mark 15. We hear the sun's cry. As we move into verse 36, it says, And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to take him down. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The cry here we find in the book of John, when John gives his account of this event, he tells us the three words that Jesus says during this cry. He says, it is finished. That was not a sinner's cry. That was the son's cry to the father. He took the punishment for sin for those three hours as it was all poured on him and the wrath and the judgment and all was poured out on him and under the shroud of darkness. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, but then here he says something different. His cry is different. It's not the cry of a sinner. It's the cry of the son declaring to the father, it is finished. It is finished. This was the son's cry. I have finished your work, father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And it says this, and then he gave up the ghost. The Romans did not take the life of Jesus. The Jews did not take the life of Jesus. The Gentile world did not take the life of Jesus. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He died on the cross. And not only did he die on the cross, but after while he hung there, there was a point where he could actually officially declare to the Father, Father, it is finished. It is paid in full. I have done the work. I have fulfilled the payment. I have fulfilled the law. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Here is my life. And the life of Jesus was poured out that day. The last part we find in verse 38 is the fourth thing that I notice at Calvary, which is Jesus' 
Conciliation. It's not a word we often use, but it simply means to be reconciled. It's also in our Bibles as the word propitiation. It would be very similar to that. But Jesus is conciliation, to be reconciled. It also means to bring peace and harmony. To bring peace and harmony. Between who? Between what? To bring a treaty agreeing to peace. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. And pick up in verse 13. At Calvary, we see Jesus' conciliation. Later, Paul is given liberty by the Holy Spirit to write these words, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you see what happened? In these passages, Paul reminds us of the reconciliation that took place at the cross of Calvary. When Jesus first utters the cry of the sinner and then later utters the cry of of the Son, we find a great event took place and it happened in the temple that the Jews held so high and mighty, even above their own Messiah. And it was this, that the veil was torn in twain from top to bottom. Mark chapter 15 says it like this, And Jesus cried with a loud voice, gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now the significance of that is is so great because the veil is what separated man from God. It was a symbol of the fact that no human being could come into the presence of God. And the only ones that could come into His presence were just a few known as the high priests of the nation of Israel. And they alone were able to walk into the holiest of holies, passing through the veil and applying blood upon an altar the Ark of the Covenant, which inside had the broken Ten Commandments, the broken law. And year after year, they would pass through the veil in order to do that. But no one else could come into the presence of God. But then our high priest comes, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And he comes and he lives lives a sinless and perfect life. And he comes and he hangs on that Roman cross, fulfilling the law 
shedding his precious blood, taking care of the sin debt, and immediately after he says it is finished and gives up his life, that veil is torn in two from top to bottom. That means this was a work of God. From heaven it was torn down to earth, and Jesus Christ alone becomes the bridge that brings each and every living soul into everlasting life with God Almighty. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find that Paul mentions the enmity that was between us and God, the partition that separated us from the holy because we are unholy. And he says it was through Christ, through the body, that by the cross he slayed enmity. He took care of that which was between us because we were seen by God Almighty as trespassers and rebels And yet Jesus Christ alone brought us nigh to God. He brought us close. And because he brought us close, now there is a great inheritance that we have that is ours. There There are things that are mentioned here about us becoming fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And many can come by way of faith through that cross and can be added to the family of God. See, at Calvary, Jesus, not only did he suffer and die, not only did he endure great punishment and great torture that no man should have had to endure, not only did he have to deal with the scoffers and the mockers and the doubters, and all these are negative things, but it was through all of those turns of events that Christ brings us to the place of his conciliation, which is that the temple veil was torn in two and that now we can pass through Christ and we can receive everlasting life and that Jesus broke down the wall of sin that once separated and condemned all of mankind to hell. Jesus made the way to God available. That's the silver lining of the cross. Jesus made the way to God available to us all. God's not a respecter of persons. All he does is he calls, he he commands everyone to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Believe that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he even rose again on that third day according to the scriptures. In the coming weeks, we'll address the resurrection as well. But this morning, as we look at the silver lining here, Christ has made a way available for us all to get to God. Tomorrow we start a new year, and, you know, I think each new year has its trials. But I believe our passage teaches us, teaches us some wonderful good news, and it's this, that Jesus has made the way available to God. So that no matter what trial might come in 2024, in this coming year, we can be reminded from the Scriptures, Philippians chapter 4, for instance, verse 13, that we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Because there is no longer a wall separating us from God. That through Christ, we can have any victory that we're looking for. Through faith, God can work out any situation in your life in the coming days and weeks and months and years. And Christ not only died for us so that we might be delivered from the penalty of sin, Not only did he die so that we might be delivered from the punishment of sin, 
But He also died for us that we might be delivered from the power of sin. And there's no reason for a Christian to continue to live a defeated life. Because you go and read Mark chapter 14 and go back over those passages and I want you to know, Christ already cried the sinner's cry. But then He cried the cry of the Son as well. And Christ declared, it is finished. Why do we keep going back to the drawing board to try to find another way? The answer is in Jesus Christ. The solution is through Jesus Christ. The power is through Jesus Christ. All that you're seeking after today, and all that you'll seek after in 2024, by faith we have to believe it'll all happen through Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what the Bible tells us, and that's what we see at Calvary. Yes, our sins were washed away. We are forever clean now because of Christ. By faith, you can receive that forgiveness from sin. You can receive that cleansing. You can be made as white as snow, but also it's the continued living for Christ that is important as well. That our faith continues to bring us along in our journey, continues to provide the power of God in our lives, and continues to keep that wall that once separated man from God down so that the Almighty might be involved in our lives. As we think about how we're moving into next year, it could be that this morning maybe someone's here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you haven't, then you're on your way to hell. It's that simple. That might sound bold, but it's true. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to be right with God except for through the man, God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, and he proves it at the cross of Calvary. He was delivered for our offenses. And if that's you this morning, I want to, I want to encourage you, why not start off this new year? I know this is the eve of the new year, but why not start it off by making that right? Just come by faith. Recognize what Jesus has done for you. That God became a man, hung on that cross, and died so that you would be delivered from the penalty of sin and be blessed with the presence of God in your life.